Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Now, if you listened last week, we started a conversation on evolution, the design in human cells and human origins. And I'm talking to Dr. Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe. Fuzz, thanks for coming back for part two of our, this conversation. Ryan, thanks for having me again. Now, again, as I always say, if you missed last week, you got to go back and check it out. We started this conversation, had a lot of fun talking about design in the cell and how biochemistry points to God and how should we view science and evolution and some of those things. And so now we're going to jump in to human origins. Where did humans come from and how are we connected with Neanderthals or are we connected at all? And this is actually what started the conversation for me is being asked questions about Neanderthals. I simply couldn't answer. And so I wanted to go to someone who had the answers and that is Dr. Rana. So really quick, and I don't even know if you've read this book, but uh, David, a student actually wrote in on Instagram and said, what is your opinion on the book by Harari titled Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind? Have you read it? I have the book on my shelf, but I'm ashamed to admit that I haven't read it yet. But I imagine that it's it's essentially a book that is describing probably the latest insights into the origin of humanity from an evolutionary perspective. And um, and I've heard very good things about the book. It, it seems to be a very popular book. So no doubt uh, Harari is a an excellent writer that's capable of communicating, you know, scientific ideas to uh, to lay people in a way that that is fascinating, that that excites interest in them and excites people's imagination. But I haven't read the book, but I've, I've read many books like that, where it's, again, a, a presentation of uh, an, evolu- an evolutionary view of humanity's origins. Okay. Well, and then now we're going to get what you do know about is the Christian view, the creation account of humans' origins. And so actually just going back to one of the listener comments, a lot of listeners wrote in this time. Uh, Mr. Martin wrote in on Facebook, uh, what do you believe about the modern where, uh, about the modern human beings, how they originated, and how does this reconcile with the Genesis account? Yeah. Well, you know, I am uh, I hold it to a position that's known as old earth creationism. And in a nutshell, what that means is I look at the days in Genesis 1 as being periods of time, not 24 hours. And so then I look at the Genesis 1 account as as transpiring over the last four and a half billion years of life's history, where each day of creation is like a snapshot or a highlight of what God did uh, on a particular point in time in Earth's history or life's history, where a lot of details are left out of of the story where we can learn about those details through scientific investigation. Uh, but the, again, the, the, I think the Genesis 1 account is historical. It's chronological. It does a marvelous job in a relatively few number of verses of encompassing in, in a fairly uh, comprehensive way uh, the, the history of uh, the earth and the history of life on earth. And I would say that as part of that, I look at the creation of male and female in God's image as reflecting a, a divine act where a creator intervened directly in a personal way to bring about the creation of, of human beings. So in other words, I would reject the idea that God used evolution as a way to create humanity, but instead look at humanity's origin as being, again, divinely orchestrated in a direct personal way uh, where there were creatures like the hominins, like Neanderthals and Homo erectus and, and Lucy, that existed, but I would see them as part of God's creation. Uh, that, but not uh, evolutionary 
predecessors to human beings, where I, I again, would reject the idea of human evolution and, and a relatedness that we would have in evolutionary terms to these other creatures. Perfect. And you explained a lot of other reasons why you reject that in our last part, talking about complexity of the cell and DNA. And so uh, a lot more answers there in that last part. Um, so when when the Bible says that Adam and Eve are created, uh, you would say that those are literal historical first human beings? That's exactly right. Uh, that they were, yeah, literally the very first human beings made in God's image and that all humanity emanates from this first man and first woman. Well, and I was going to kind of continue on. And so when the Bible says that they're creating the Garden of Eden, where do you think that, that does Genesis give an account of, of where that is and how would that relate to science? Yeah, well, you know, the Garden of Eden is the, defined in, um, in Genesis 2 uh, by four rivers, uh, the Tigris, Euphrates, the Gihon and the Pishon rivers. We don't know where the Gihon and the Pishon rivers were located, but there is a mention of the land of Cush, which in the Old Testament refers to the land of Ethiopia. So I think the Garden of Eden would have clearly included, you know, Iran, the, 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 that portion of the Middle East, but Mesopotamia, but would also extend most likely into parts of Africa as well. And it's intriguing to me that through the use of uh, genetic analysis, where people are looking at the genetic variability of, of human beings and looking at different genetic markers in our genomes, and then from that variability, trying to extract information about the origin and the early migration of humanity is that we can place an origin of humanity in what appears to be uh, very close to where um, biblical scholars would place the Garden of Eden. And so to me, that's really provocative. And this same analysis also places the origin of humanity in, in not only a single location close to where we think the Garden of Eden would have been, but relatively recently, not millions of years ago, but on the order of uh, tens of thousands of years ago, perhaps about 100,000 years ago. Interestingly enough, humanity would have started from a relatively small population and uh, using mitochondrial DNA as a marker or Y-chromosomal DNA as a marker, we can trace the origin of humanity back to these ancestral sequences that many people believe correspond to a single male and a single female individual dubbed mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. And so this is really very provocative. This is all done within the context of the evolutionary paradigm and is interpreted in evolutionary terms. But this is really provocative in light of the biblical story of humanity's origins. There seems to be this resonance or this harmony that is really, really provocative, suggesting to me that there is credibility uh, to the biblical story of human origins. Wow. So, okay. So about a hundred thousand years ago, uh, is human origins. Um, now I, I like that you just brought up the idea of the mitochondrial ancestors of mitochondrial atom or, or chromosomal atom and mitochondrial Eve. Uh, I recently just in the last month or so had a skeptic write me and say, you know, those aren't, uh, that's not evidence of a first man and first woman. That's just one man and one woman. But scientists believe that there were other humans at the same time. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is that true? Yes. Well, I mean, that is true. And that that is what um, a number of people in the scientific community would argue, uh, people looking at the origin of humanity in evolutionary terms. And part of it is um, the fact that from an evolutionary perspective, individuals don't evolve, populations evolve. So by definition, if you're looking at the origin of humanity 
from an evolutionary perspective, there has to be a population by definition. That's simply a requirement of evolutionary theory. Okay. And then secondarily, people would argue that the genetic diversity of humanity is too extensive for it to come from uh, a, a single male and a single female individual, and therefore they argue there must be a population. But we've written some articles and also talked about this in our book, Who Was Adam?, where we point out that those methods that are used to calculate or estimate the population size based on genetic diversity very well may not be, at the end of the day, valid methods, uh, that there may actually be problems with those computations. And so while I would say that the science doesn't prove definitively the biblical account of human origins, the science doesn't rule it out either, that there very well could be a, a, a you know a, a single male and a single female individual that gave rise to all humanity, uh, and, and so I see mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam at minimum pointers to a biblical Adam and a biblical Eve, and maybe they could even be the biblical Adam and the biblical Eve. Perfect, thank you. That really helps. A question that I've always wondered is, is what you just said is that they'll say that there's too much genetic diversity to come from a single pair. Yet at the same time, that uh, they would say that we came, you know, evolved and were related, you know, to to massively different creatures. Uh, how is it that evolution can produce a genetic diversity between us and all living things, but it can't produce a genetic diversity between the races of human beings? If I, I get what you're you're driving at, I, that would be my very point. And what's interesting is the idea that I described for human origins is referred to as um, the out of Africa model. Uh, and one of the chief criticisms early on with the out of Africa model was that it couldn't account for the genetic variability that we see among people around the world, that it couldn't account for the racial diversity that we see or the regional differences. And so there's been quite a bit of attention paid to how do we explain that the origin of humanity and it, or sorry, the origin of, of uh, the racial diversity for humanity. And it turns out that we now have a really good understanding of how that racial diversity arose, and you can explain it very easily through natural selection, sexual selection, and genetic drift. Uh, in other words, microevolutionary mechanisms could explain how these raci this racial diversity arose as humanity began to migrate around the world uh, from out or near the Middle East, and that it can that diversity could arise in in a relatively short period of time, just in a few generations. And so, uh, the, the science actually again supports the notion that that genetic variability could arise really very quickly. It doesn't take vast periods of time for it to arise. Now, getting into the topic of uh, the reason why I contacted you and Neanderthals, and you mentioned this uh, in your explanation of the biblical account of creation, that you said that uh, God created Adam and Eve uniquely, uh, separate from other creatures like them. So then who are the Neanderthals? Yeah, well, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, People would argue that Neanderthals were part of this evolutionary drama. Now, what's interesting is that most evolutionary biologists with this point would actually not place Neanderthals as our direct ancestors, but rather they would argue that Neanderthals are an evolutionary side branch, a kind of an evolutionary dead end where, okay. where the modern human lineage diverged from an ancestor that was shared with Neanderthals in the distant past those two lineages went in separate directions. So we did not evolve from Neanderthals, even in an evolutionary context. Now, from, from my perspective, as somebody who's an old earth creationist, I would argue that Neanderthals were creatures that were 
um, made by God that had some intelligence and emotional capability, but they lacked the image of God. They lacked uh, the, the Imago Dei. And, and I would look at them as, uh, as again, these, these remarkable creatures that are fascinating, but I would think of them in the same vein that I would think of chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas, remarkable creatures, but I would see them as distinct creations, not an, our evolutionary predecessor. And to me, it's interesting that the, the data actually supports the idea uh, that this idea, because we would predict that that was true, there should be biological differences between humans and Neanderthals and behavioral differences as well. And we see that that humans and Neanderthals are genetically different enough that we could call them separate species, that our, our anatomy was different enough that clearly Neanderthals look different than, than we did as human beings. And there's a number of anatomical differences that, that, are dis, that distinguish humans from Neanderthals. And then finally, uh, from the archaeological record, we see behavioral differences between humans and Neanderthals, that our, be, our behavioral uh, our behavior was rather different, where Neanderthals lacked the capacity for symbolism, including language, whereas human beings, we possess this ability of symbolism and language, which I would attribute to a manifestation of the image of God. So the science actually bears out uh, the prediction that we would make uh, as to what we would expect to see when we study uh, Neanderthals' biology and their behavior. Uh, now, you often hear a lot of times just on popular media that Neanderthals are so much like humans. They they maybe had a language or they maybe communicated, they they cooked, they farmed, they did these kind of things. Is this also true or is this kind of what we assume was happening, but we don't have a good reason to believe it? Well, it is true that those claims are made in the scientific literature, to be certain. And and when those claims are made, there's they generate quite a bit of publicity. And, and there are people today that are trying to argue for what we would call Neanderthal exceptionalism, where Neanderthals are exceptional, just like humans are exceptional. And in fact, there's almost a political correctness to this movement where people are viewing Neanderthals as a like a marginalized people group that have been mislabeled as these, you know, cognitively inferior brutes. It's and so it's that that commitment to Neanderthal exceptionalism is almost an overriding philosophical pre-commitment on the part of some scientists. Uh, and, and so these claims are out there, but yet those claims don't withstand scientific scrutiny. And in my book, Who is Adam? I take each one of those claims and show why those claims don't withstand, again, ongoing scientific investigation. I've written blog articles for my blog, The Cells Design, since who was Adam was published, where I continue to show how these claims really don't withstand scientific scrutiny. Uh, and so from my perspective, there's no good scientific evidence to think Neanderthals were making art. They had language capability, that they mastered fire, that they employed symbolism. In fact, when you look at the brain structure of Neanderthals, it becomes evident from their brain structure, at least what we've learned recently about the brain structure, that their brain anatomy would not be would not support the ability to think in an advanced, uh, superior cognitive way. So to me, even though those claims are out there, those claims are driven as much by worldview considerations as they are by the scientific evidence. In fact, if you wanted to look at the evidence exclusively and draw conclusions, I think the safe conclusion would be that human beings stand apart from Neanderthals 
we appear to be exceptional when Neanderthals don't. Well, and I'm talking to Dr. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe, as he just mentioned, one of his books, Who Was Adam? Other books he's written, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. Uh, great content. Thank you so much for taking this time. But uh, as we kind of continue on, so you mentioned that humans probably lived, or, or Adam and Eve were probably created around 100,000 years ago. Uh, when are we guessing that, uh, or when do we know that, that Neanderthals existed? Well, they existed from roughly 250,000 years ago, and they disappeared or went extinct, oh, about 40, between 50 and 40,000 years ago. There's some dispute as to precisely when they disappeared. Uh, they were they lived primarily in the Middle East, Europe, and in Asia. There's some people that claim they may have even made their way into North America, though that's heavily disputed. Uh, and, and so there would be a period of time when humans and Neanderthals would have coexisted, and, and uh, right about the time that Neanderthals go extinct, humans begin to migrate around the world and could have potentially encountered Neanderthals when we were making our way out of the Middle East into, uh, into Europe and into Asia. So Caleb writes in and then he says, okay, so if, if, these, uh, if Neanderthals and humans overlapped in their time, and you're saying maybe around 60,000 years, uh, you know, does the Bible talk about it? Are Neanderthals maybe the, uh, the Nephilim of Genesis? Or is, the, is there anything in Scripture that points to some other creature like a Neanderthal? Well, you know, if, the short answer is no. I, I mean, I don't see anything in Scripture that, that directly states Neanderthals existed or even implies Neanderthals existed. Um, but just because scripture is silent on it doesn't mean that, that they would not have existed. I mean, we didn't know about Neanderthals until the, the mid 1800s. And we didn't know about hominins until probably, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so it wouldn't make any sense for, uh, for Genesis to have the accounts, the accounts of creatures that would be unknown to to people that initially received the book of Genesis. I mean, for most of human history, uh, the, to mention Neanderthals really would make you know would make very little sense. Uh, other than um, you know, it, it's a phenomena that we now are you know we're confronted with. But why would that be included in, in Genesis one? To me, the purpose of the Genesis one creation account is to point out to the, the people that are receiving the text, that everything that we see around us was made by the creator. And so we shouldn't worship the creation, but rather than the creator who is responsible for everything that we see. I think that's the, the message of Genesis 1. But there's no need to mention creatures that were part of the, the past history of life on Earth. Um, there would be no need to do that. So I don't think scripture mentions them. Okay. And so what would their role be? Um, that's what Caleb also follows up with. It, why would God create uh, a, a creature just to then just go extinct? Well, you know, um, that, that's a great question. Um, and, and in many respects, I really don't know the answer to that question. But I mean, in, in a sense, Neanderthals were on Earth longer than we've been on Earth as human beings. And so their existence was for easily 200 to 250,000 years. So it wasn't like they were short-lived on, on the face of the earth. They lived for a significant period of time. And you know, as to why God would create these creatures, we're really left with nothing more than speculation. 
Okay. Uh, perhaps they played some kind of important role, ecologically speaking. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I don't really have an answer to that. But um, there's a lot of things that I don't know why God would necessarily do. And so just because I don't have that answer yeah. doesn't trouble me. It might trouble other people. It doesn't trouble me. But that becomes the fun part, I think, of, of scientific investigation is to ask those kind of questions and and, you know, to, to begin, it, maybe that answer will come one day. And, and my suspicion is if it ever does come, we will see a, a, a beautiful rationale for why these creatures existed. Yeah. And recently I put something out that, you know, most of the time when someone asks you the question, why did God or why didn't God? The answer is, I don't know. Uh, he hasn't been, he hasn't told us. Now, at one point, at one point in your, um, your answer, you, you mentioned the difference between hominids and Neanderthals. Can you quick kind of explain what is the difference between those two? Uh, a Neanderthal is actually a hominin. The hominin just simply refers to the uh, to primates that have the capacity to walk erect. So that would include creatures like Lucy, or more appropriately, the, the Australopithecines. It would include include things like Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and Neanderthals. So uh, uh, it's just a it's a scientific term that refers to these uh, creatures that we might more affectionately call ape ape men. Okay, now most people probably have heard of Lucy, um, a very common maybe piece of evidence used to show some sort of human evolution. Uh, what are your thoughts on Lucy? Well, you know, again, I think that that Lucy and the and the species that she belongs to clearly existed on Earth. Again, I would just see her as part of the creation, and in fact, many people see her as an evolutionary ancestor to humanity. But like Neanderthals. Uh, in the latest evolutionary model, she's rendered a side branch and an evolutionary dead end. And it's rather intriguing, but you literally cannot go back through the hominin fossil record and document a pathway uh, in which that evolution took to produce human beings. Most of the creatures that, that we traditionally think of as, as part of our the evolutionary ascent of man are actually evolutionary dead ends and side branches. And this includes not only Lucy, but it includes... Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Neanderthals. So the creatures that we traditionally think of as being part of this evolutionary drama uh, that shows up in textbooks are actually considered side branches and dead ends. So this idea that there's this evolutionary pathway through the fossil record is really not the case whatsoever. Yeah, that's very helpful. Now, the specific question that was asked to me by a student that I had no idea, and I said, look, that's a great question. I don't know, but let me find out. And let me ask and try to get some information for you. Uh, you mentioned about the genetic diversity and just the, the racial diversity that we see in human beings. And this student said that he had read that there are different races based on the amount of Neanderthal DNA we have in our genome. Uh, is this true? If so, how do we understand this? Yeah, well, um, it, it is true that uh, scientists uh, think they have detected the evidence for Neanderthal DNA in the human genome. And it is true that depending on uh, the, the particular region of the world that your ancestors are from, you're going to have differing amounts of Neanderthal DNA. So if you, your family traces an ancestry to Africa, it's very unlikely that you have Neanderthal DNA in your genome. But if you come from Europe or from Asia, or if you are, your ancestry is Native American, you most likely will have a Neanderthal DNA in your genome, probably two to four percent. And if you're from Asia, and if you, you or your ancestry is from Polynesia, 
you also would have a genetic signature that comes from another mysterious hominin called the Denisovans that nobody, or the Denisovans, that nobody knows much about. These are these mysterious hominins that people think existed that we have DNA evidence for, but we don't have a fossil record for. So it is true that th that, that we do have differing genetic signatures for uh, hominins in our in our genome, both Neanderthals and the Denisovans. And would this be evidence of interbreeding between Neanderthals and humans? Uh, yes, that's that's how the scientific community views it. Is that uh, that modern humans arose uh, in in East Africa, and as we began to migrate around the world, uh, we would have encountered Neanderthals, and in some. People argue that there were a limited number of interbreeding events that happened when humans encountered Neanderthals in the Middle East. Others argue that that interbreeding took place uh, throughout um, the time that humans were migrating uh, through um, Europe and through Asia, that there were multiple interbreeding events. But that's how they would argue that that, that DNA wound up in our genomes is through these interbreeding interactions. And how would interbreeding be possible? Because I know, you know, humans can't just breed with anything. So yeah. if there's interbreeding possibilities, wouldn't that show just how human-like these creatures are? Well, I mean, there, there are people that would argue that the fact that we are able to interbreed reflects that we must have emerged from a shared ancestor. Uh, but I would argue that you could also view that interbreeding as reflecting the fact that we have shared designs and those shared designs allow for interbreeding to take place. Now, the, 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 the data indicates uh, that, and in the, in the way you arrive at these conclusions is very complex, but the data indicates that, uh, that the Neanderthal-human hybrids were just on the cusp of being able to survive. In other words, there's no evidence that, that there's any Neanderthal DNA in the Y chromosome, meaning that if the hybrid was a male, it either didn't survive or it wasn't able to reproduce. And so the, okay. the only hybrids that survived would be female, and they were just on the cusp of being able to hang on and survive. And so this to me suggests that either from an evolutionary perspective, the divergence between humans and Neanderthals was so extensive that we were just on the cusp of no longer being able to interbreed, that we were really becoming separate species. Or if you look at it from a creation model perspective, that the similarities re between us reflect shared designs and that we just happen to have enough similarity with Neanderthals that when we interbred, that on occasion hybrids would have survived um, that, that interbreeding event. Wow, so interesting. So we have about one minute left. So let me Whoa. see if I can summarize it and make sure that I'm understanding. So from your perspective, uh, God would create Neanderthals uh, separately before humans. Humans come along about 150,000 years or so later. Uh, and so if you come from an African descent, if you, that's where your ancestry traces back to, since humans started there, uh, the out-of-Africa theory, then your, your genome is probably going to be pretty clear of Neanderthals. But since humans then traveled to other parts of the world, there was some interbreeding. And so if your ancestry traces to a different part, you might have some Neanderthal DNA in you, but that in no way contradicts God creating two separate creatures at two separate places at uh, different times. Yeah, I, I don't think so. And and it's really interesting because when you look at Scripture, uh, you see, uh, for example, these these prohibitions against humans basically in, engaging in bestiality, right? Or you yeah. you see 
uh, for example, this what looks like an interbreeding event described in Genesis 6 that produces the Nephilim. This is a highly mysterious passage of Scripture, but there seems to be some kind of biblical precedence here, uh, kind of warning humans from engaging uh, creatures uh, that would be like us. And I was actually having a conversation today, ironically, on this very topic with somebody, uh, and the, the point that this person brought up and this may sound a little ridiculous at first, is that there, when you look at the, the mythology associated with human cultures, there are these discussions of things like goblins and dwarfs and, and, and that type of thing, and, and hobbits, you know, if you read yeah. Tolkien. But, but we know, for example, that, 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 that Neanderthals would have been bulkier than humans, that they would have looked different. Even though they would look similar to us, they also would look distinct from us. They may not have had the same cognitive abilities. There are this, these creatures, Homo floresiensis, or these diminutive human, uh, hominins that lived on the island of Flores that, that coexisted with humans as well. And that could it be that these, these myths are actually reflecting something that was embedded in our collective memory as a human species based on these early encounters with creatures that later then went extinct. Wow, so interesting. We are out of time, but I know you have given me so much to think about. I know you've given listeners a lot to think about and hopefully help them answer the questions they have on the human origin and uh, Neanderthals. Dr. Rana, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this with me today. Ryan, thanks for having me. Won't hesitate to follow your love.